to Oh Walsh House. It's me. It's your man. It's your main man. It's Old Walsh. And I'm back with you for episode 112 of Old Walsh House. Uh, coming your way, we got a fun show. Uh, got a new guest. Got a couple of returning guests. Uh, so first of all, we're going to start off with uh, our new guest, David Page, the man behind Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Uh, he comes on and talks to me about all things food. Uh, all things food. He's got a new book coming out, uh, Food Americana, or I, I, it might not be a new book coming out. It's, it's maybe been out for a bit, but go check it out. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, looks like a good read. That was a really fun conversation that we had coming your way here shortly. Uh, also got a you know a couple of returning guests, the the Gordon Brothers, T Man and H Man, uh, come on to to talk a little Flyers hockey here. Um, so I, I just want to again say thank you to everybody. Thank you to, for everybody who, who watches, who listens. Uh, thank you for producer Kevy. He's helping me kind of transition to to take over some editing myself as he's probably sick of dealing with my shit. So uh, thank you to him. Uh, again, thank you to everybody who watches. Uh, you guys know to deal with a little housekeeping. If you guys could, please uh, comment, share, subscribe, review. Uh, give, give me all the likes. Do all that stuff. So if, if you guys could do that, that'd be super helpful. And if you're looking for uh, 20% off Liquid IV, I got a promo code for you. OWH promo code is OWH O for O W for walls H for house your liquid IV 20% off I love liquid IV I use it almost daily I love the convenience of the little pack you throw that in 16 ounces of water you shake it up and you're good to go you get more electrolytes than your leading sport drinks you get double the hydration than water alone it's easy to use they believe in equitable access to water they've given away over 39 million servings of water it's non-gmo it's vegan it's non-dairy it's good stuff. So 20% off Liquid IV. Either go to liquidiv.com, use the promo code at checkout, or go to the link in my the link in the bio below. Um, and you can in the show notes and you can get it that way too. So uh fun show coming up. So let let's just dive right into it. Okay, David, we'll try this a, a second time here. Round two. Uh a new guest joined me here today, David Page, uh, who is uh probably I think most well known through diners, drive-ins, and dives. Uh you were the producer on that. Uh, so first of all, thank you for joining us, um, and I'll let you kind of just tell your story a little bit again about kind of a little bit about your background and, and how you got started doing what you do and what you're up to now. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I created Diners, executive produced the first 11 seasons, but my career in media goes way back to when I was uh, in high school and got my first job on a local radio station. And then uh, as I got older, followed jobs around the country, uh, going to college along the way, but uh, to my mother's consternation, never graduating. <laughs> I worked in radio uh, in Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, and in, it was in Kansas where I got into television, moved over to a local TV station. Uh, from there, I went to Phoenix as an investigative reporter, held the same job in Atlanta and Houston. Uh, then got picked up by NBC as a producer out of their Chicago bureau, did a couple of years there, was moved internationally, living first in London, then Frankfurt, then Budapest, where I was lucky enough to cover some of the greatest stories of the 20th century. I walked through the Berlin Wall the night it opened, uh, came back to the States, became a show producer created the weekend editions of the Today Show with a partner. Uh, at, a at ABC News, I uh, when I went there, 
I was both uh, sequentially the senior investigator producer of 2020 and the uh, one of three line producers for Good Morning America, which meant every third week uh, reporting to the executive producer. The show was basically mine to, to produce and put on the air. Uh, after that, I moved on to um, my own production company. And the um, eventual result of that was creating diners, drive-ins, and dives. That is uh, quite a, a varied past, literally all over the world. The The fact that you were at the, the Berlin Wall the night it came down is, uh, what a crazy, you know, probably happenstance for you to be there. Because, I mean, it wasn't like it was something that was predicted, you know, obviously no, you but, probably know uh, that. Actually, we were there because there had been such change going on in the East Block. Uh, and so much of it was now centered on East Berlin because Czechoslovakians were using a loophole in the law to leave their country and then go through East Germany or East Berlin to get to the West. So, okay. you know, and I had been covering the the revolutions since the beginning, um, running our local coverage on the ground in many cases. Uh, one of my Emmys is for the Romanian Revolution. So this was no surprise, and we had Brokaw there that night. I mean, we were doing the entire show, Nightly News, from the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, it was kind of astonishing when shortly before uh, news time, one of the photographers ran into the production trailer and said to me, they're streaming out. And I said, pardon my French bullshit. You know, <laughs> I, I've been working on the other side of the wall for years. They don't come streaming out. And he said, well, look at this. And he opened the viewfinder on his camera and played some tape back in they were streaming out, uh, and it turned out that uh, East Germany, East Berlin in particular, just said, "Okay, fine, you want out? Go, get out." And it was a hell of a show. And at two in the morning, I I walked with a crew through Checkpoint Charlie and back into the east. Uh, and this is a way, you know, I had done this for years, but for years it was like a spy movie where you stopped at the guardhouse and they ran mm -hmm. the mirrors under your car and they opened the trunk and sometimes they pulled out the back seat. Uh, and in this case it was deserted and we just walked through it uh, wow. in the middle of the night. So it was a pretty remarkable event. I would say so. That's incredible. Just the, the thought of, you know, being there for that. I mean, I, I wasn't even born at the time, but, just you, you know, child, I'm a, you. Yeah, I'm I'm a, like a a minor, like uh, totally amateur kind of history nut. So I like to read things about stuff. So I've I've read you know plenty of stuff about it, but to hear somebody actually on the ground that night, that's that's incredible. Uh, well, you know it, why? I, you know the pictures, the video of all those Germans dancing on top of the wall. Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for that. I ran over with my crew, with one of our many crews, but. I ran over with a ladder so that my crew could get up on the wall to shoot down. And once they went up, a bunch of Germans stole my ladder from me, literally wrestled <laughs> it away. And everybody was on top of the wall. So it was just, it was party time. Incredible. Incredible. So how do you go from doing things like that, traveling the globe, uh, you know, in all the different countries you named? I can't even, you know, recite them all back to you. How do you go from that to getting into, you know, the, the line of industry of, of food. Like what, what's the, what's the process? What, how does that happen? What, what goes on yeah. to do that for you? First of all, it's all storytelling. Secondly, as I approached it, it was all completely factual. 
Um, and it began, you know, I've always liked food, but when I was first sent to work internationally, it had never occurred to me I would live outside the country. I was in many respects, woefully unprepared in terms of my knowledge about the various places I was going at first. And I quickly decided that one of the ways to understand a culture is through their cuisine. Um, you know, the, the Greek meza, shared small plates, is representative of a culture that prizes sociability. Um, you know the word Epicurean? Well, it comes from a philosopher named Epicurus, who famously wrote that when you're choosing to have dinner, it's essential to first choose who you will dine with before you choose what you're going to have to eat or wear, because to dine alone is to live the life of a wolf. Or Tuscany, uh, so many Tuscan dishes uh, are built around wild boar. Well, when you when you dig into that, it's because um, Tuscany was traditionally a very, very poor region of Italy. And if you were going to eat, you were going to have to hunt. And the locally available animal to hunt was a wild boar. And on and on in, in different countries and places. And by the time I got back to the States, when I was, was sent back to be a show producer, I had a pretty deep curiosity and interest in, in all things culinary and especially the roots of the food. So that when I finally left Network News and, and moved on and opened my own production company, um, that interest was already in my head. Now, I didn't say to myself, I'm going to do food television. What I did say to myself is, I want to make enough money to eat. And I was not booking any work uh, as a production company. So I called a friend of mine, Al Roker, who had technically worked for me on the Weekend Today show before he was on the main show. And he had a production company, still does. And I said, hey, I'm starving. You got any work you could send me? And he said, sure and started subcontracting some of his Food Network stuff to me. So I was able to begin honing my food TV skills. And we, we both understood that I wasn't going to get rich um, by being a paid contractor for someone else's production company. So eventually I started pitching the Food Network uh, on my own. And they were kind. They knew me now, so they talked to me. But everything was no. No, no, mm -hmm. no, no, no. Finally, I'm on the. It was all to one executive, uh, and one day I'm on the phone with her, and she says, "I think, out of pity and exasperation, she said, do you have anything about diners?'" And I said, "Oh yeah, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives." And she said, "Well, that sounds interesting. Uh, we have a development meeting Tuesday. Get me a write-up on Monday." Uh, and this was late on a Thursday or Friday, and I got off the phone, you know, pleased that she had shown some interest. But facing a challenge now, because I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dine. <laughs> I had just pulled the name out of thin air, or if you wish, a bodily orifice. So, I, you know, I had a couple of, I had the weekend to uh, call around the country and figure it out. I submitted a proposal for a one-hour special on Monday. Uh, they had their meeting Tuesday. Shortly thereafter, they picked it up. And now I was in the food TV business. Now, they didn't pick it up as a series. They picked it up as a special okay. uh, because they Guy Fieri had just won their Food Network Star Contest. And, and to date, he's the only winner who's ever become a star. But back then, they thought this was the way they were going to mill future stars. 
So they wanted to get Guy a primetime show, and they wanted the audience not to forget him. So they asked some major league production companies to pitch a primetime show, and they figured this special would, you know, keep him in front of the public for a while. Well, the special did well, and they did not like the pitches from the big boy production companies, so they figured they'd take a gamble, and they ordered a short season one of Diners. Uh, and it struck a chord with the public, uh, which still didn't mean they had any faith in it. I remember an executive telling me after the first few episodes had, had been a hit. Uh, don't get too excited because we don't figure you got more than, you know, one <laughs> or two seasons. There just aren't enough restaurants. Uh, I stayed with it as EP for the first 11 seasons. They're now in season 40 something. So perhaps their initial assessment was incorrect. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit, right? I mean, I, I just pulled up the just the Wikipedia page, and yeah, you're pretty close. Episode, uh, season 39 was 2023 to 2024 here. So, yeah, I think they uh, they missed on the there's not going to be enough restaurants. Uh, well, but see, I, that's, I, that's so indicative of television. William Gold and movies. William Goldman, double Oscar winning screenwriter, one of the greatest screenwriters in the history of Hollywood. He did Butch Cassidy, he did All the President's Men, he did The Princess Bride. Uh, he's written a number of books about Hollywood, and in his first book called Adventures in the Screen Trade, he lays out Goldman's rule, which relates to why some things get picked up, why they don't, um, why uh, studios or networks believe in something or don't. And his rule was quite simply, no one knows anything. <laughs> and then they don't like to admit that, too, on top of it, no, right? of course not. But that's okay. So so take me to that weekend. You've pitched diners, drive-ins, and, uh, sorry, diners, drive-ins, and, and dives. Gosh, I can't speak today. It's <clears throat> okay. You pull the name out of your ass, and then you go home that weekend. What's well, your my initial thought? In my home, I, I didn't have to go very far. <laughs> so you didn't have to go anywhere, at least. So you took one step out of the process. So mm -hmm. what's your initial thoughts? Are you like, oh, gosh, what have I done? Or you just immediately have ideas coming to you? Well, look, I, I was a network breaking <clears throat> news producer for years. Um, it, there's never what have I done. When someone says, can you do this? You say yes, and then you figure out why. I mean, one of my favorite stories from my time overseas was trying to visualize um, life behind the Berlin Wall. And so one day I got up, my favorite correspondent had a severe hangover. So uh, I went on my own with a translator, went through Checkpoint Charlie, started knocking on doors of apartment buildings in East Berlin that faced the wall, the, the, the last buildings in, in the edge of the city. Finally uh, got the uh, Lukoski family they opened their door. We talked a little bit and we did a story about life behind the wall. And then after the wall opened, we did a story about life after the wall that featured the kids in the first one bouncing the soccer ball off the damn Berlin Wall. And in the second one, running through the leftover pieces of that wall to chase the ball. So the concept of figuring out how to make television was, was not scary. Uh, plus at this point I had been turned down for so many shows. I figured this was going to be another futile exercise. So there was no risk. 
Um, and I just, I went to work. Look, I'd been an investigative journalist for years. I knew how to find things and people. And I just started calling around the country looking for um, places that would fit the bill, that, that were a geographical variety and a culinary variety. And, uh, you know, I got a, a tiny diner in Linden, New Jersey, across from uh, an oil refinery. I got a, uh, what else did we have in that first show? A uh, breakfast joint in Minneapolis that was built on what had been um, an alleyway between two buildings. It was so narrow that they only had a counter and people would line up behind the people at the counter waiting to grab a seat. Um, we ended up doing a, um, a little drive-in Italian place just the sorts of places that fit the mandate. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, I did my job, basically, is, is what I did. So it just in the way you explain that, it sounds to me like you just kind of took the investigative journal, uh, investigative journalist kind of mindset that you had from your previous work and kind of just transferred it to well, this yeah, diner's driving thought. Any any search for facts ought to be investigated by nature. You know, they've got this title, investigative reporter, and yes, news organizations <laughs> define it. So if that's your job, that's your job. But basically, I've always looked on journalism as go find out some true stuff. And I applied the same standard. Look, when, when I was doing diners, I applied the same fact-checking standards to it that I applied to 2020's investigative unit. Everything you say in this, A must be true, B must be provable fact. Um, it, it was that simple. Now, people in the reality industry thought I was nuts because <laughs> I did that. I had my first hire as senior producer came with great credits, but early on, she tried to use a Frankenbite, which is where you take sentences people said and you edit them together in ways that change the meaning, mm -hmm. which is a standard thing in reality, but not in my universe. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And she said, you're crazy. And then she went home and got drunk and called me up and, and said a bunch of awful things. And I said, well, I'll accept <laughs> that as your resignation. And the next day she tried to rescind it, but no. So we moved on. Do you have um do you have a favorite episode, favorite restaurant you went to or a, a couple that really jumped to mind? I mean, I, I've seen I can't tell you how many, but many of the, the episodes and I well, mean, they're I, all so cool. It's it, I'd have to imagine it's hard to pick. Well, thank you. The the episode I preferred preferred is the wrong word. The episode that struck my heart best. I live in New Jersey. Um at the time of the episode, I think we had our beach house in New Jersey. We were still living in Minnesota, but I love Jersey and Jersey is the home of diners. There are more diners in New Jersey than any place else, even though the number is, is declining even here. Um, and we did a special on Jersey diners where instead of doing um, four places, no, three places, I guess we were doing in the average show at the time, instead of doing three places, we did like seven and we, you know, we had like two breakfasts and then two lunches and then two dinners <laughs> and then a late night visit to a kind of nouveau diner that serves martinis. Um, I loved that episode. It was, I mean, first of all, diner people, true diner people are just the best. They are, 
that is the mom and pop homemade food American dream scenario. Secondly, to do this in a low margin business, you really got to give a damn about making people happy and mm -hmm. diner people do. Um, and, uh, I love diner food. Uh, you know, people think of diners. If you live in a non dinery place, the name evokes greasy spoon. It's not greasy spoon. It's scratch cooking. Um, and that's great. Yeah. I mean, nothing better than scratch cooking. And I, I have a college roommate from New Jersey. Um, and I, I North, every North time or South Jersey, to, where's he from? Does he call it I, pork roll or Taylor ham? He calls it pork roll. He's from South Amboy. Originally. Yeah, that's North Jersey. That's North Jersey. I was going to yeah. say, I South think it's Amboy more on the North. It's actually the New York area. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. it's not very far from, from there at all. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was. Still uh, it's still okay. <laughs> we still count it. Many, many of the meals we had there were in diners when I when I go to What's visit the them. Best? And and look, not everything is homemade at every place, but you know, if you get the right diner, they're making their own corned beef hash. It's it's a special thing, and you know, if if you're a regular, you get to know <clears throat> the staff. There's a diner near me where uh, I walk in and the waitress puts down an iced coffee and says, same thing. And I go, same thing. And she goes <laughs> and makes my omelet. Well, the chef makes my omelet. But only now after fighting a thankfully successful battle with type 2 diabetes, I have to say, hold the hash browns. Oh, that's too bad. Hash browns are the best. It's a goddamn shame. You uh, you mentioned that you lived in Minnesota. And this kind of takes me to the, one of the topics. Um, that I that was really excited to talk to you about was pizza. And you, and I saw in your profile, you're like, any question about pizza is good. So um, I grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania. So within close enough range that to New York close city, enough, that close enough to old forge pizza. Yeah. Not very far from there as well. So, yeah. I mean, between old forge pizza, it felt like every little town in, you know, even upstate New York and northeastern Pennsylvania, all the way kind of mm -hmm. um, up and down the seaboard. There's a good little pizza restaurant somewhere in town mm -hmm. um, and you can get a good slice. And it's not, you know, it's not New York City quality, but it's it's still pretty good. Well, first um, of all, I live in you live in Wisconsin. I live in Wisconsin now. Good and luck with there's pizza, no good dude. pizza to be found. No. <laughs> the, um, the, there's the Midwest and the upper Midwest. <laughs> But how close are you to the Twin Cities? Because there's some good pizza there. Uh, about four hours. Oh, well, it's a long drive for one pizza. You should go stay over. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, understand that pizza spread across America following um, mass migration of Southern Italians to the East Coast in the 1800s. So places like Philly, New York, Boston um, were there at the beginning. New York more yep. than anything else, but, um, and then it, it, it spread across the country and evolved and, and you ended up with unique regional styles. I mean, I, it's interesting for my podcast. I interviewed Tony Gemignani just yesterday, Tony, one of the leading pizza makers in the country. He's won 16 international pizza championships, including the top prize in Naples, uh, where he said, I grabbed the trophy and I was afraid someone was going to kill me as I tried to get out of town. <laughs> But um, talk, talking uh, to Tony, he, he brought up Old Forge Pizza, which I included in my book, Food Americana, which is a unique um, deep dish oblong pizza 
that includes brick cheese, um, I think some cheddar, uh, and is done in both red and white varieties. I actually prefer the yep. white, but they're both great. And as Tony said, look, Old Forge Pizza is, violates every rule of how you're taught how <laughs> to make pizza. But if you get it, it's great. Just like um, St. Louis pizza is made with a processed cheese called Provel, um, which has liquid smoke in it. Uh, that's not New York pizza, but it's great. Detroit pizza done well is great. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I draw the line at pineapple and ham, but I'm even open <laughs> to the West Coast variants where they, you know, they made frou-frou pizza. Pizza is such an American food now because from the time it first got here, uh, it changed pretty substantially from from what it was in Naples. The ovens were different. The 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 flour was different. The availability to the impoverished of items like meat was much greater in New York than it was in Naples or, or Sicily. So right off the bat, we were evolving pizza to our own styles and tastes, which is not to say there are not places doing pizzas as done in Italy. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. a good uh, Neapolitan. There are a lot of places making a good Neapolitan, but it's not what most yep. people expect. A Neapolitan is not crispy. It is moist. It is even soupy. And it degrades. You can't deliver one of those because it degrades instantly. Um, and a lot of people don't like that. I mean, Chris Bianco, one of the leading pizza guys in the United States, told me at Pizza Bianco, Pizzeria Bianco in, uh, in Phoenix, uh, he doesn't make a Neapolitan because he doesn't like it. It's too soupy for him. What he makes is a similar version of a margarita, which is Neapolitan, uh, in the style of the region his folks came from, or his grandparents, uh, Puglia, which is a crisper pizza. That's how he likes it. That's how he makes it. But he doesn't, he doesn't call it a Neapolitan, which a lot of places do. Uh, that's a long tangent. Where was I going? We're just talking about oh, pizza in general and how I was complaining that there's no good pizza in the, the upper Midwest. Well, but see, that's also, you should eat what's what's good where you are. I live on the Jersey mm -hmm. Shore. I eat a tremendous amount of scallops because the ones that are boat, and there's, there's a fishing port uh, where I live, these boats ply the East Coast waters from Delaware up into Canada and bring back the finest scallops on the face of the earth. And when I go to a restaurant during tourist season here, which isn't a lot, but you see these tourists, these out-of-towners, eating fried shrimp. We don't <laughs> produce shrimp here. Those shrimp probably came from Indonesia or Vietnam. There's my beetle. Yeah. Um, and you're ignoring the opportunity to eat one of the great food items on earth. or Or, frankly... The, the tilefish or the monkfish, or in August, the fresh tuna. Pardon me, I'm getting a treat for my dog. The fresh tuna no, that I'm comes I'm surprised mine hasn't joined, me, joined us either. You should eat what's here. If I was in Wisconsin, I'd certainly go heavy on dairy. Um, I'd, I'd go for traditional uh, Germanic-influenced foods like sauerbraten. Uh, I'd go for uh, fried walleye. Um, I'd 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 love to find a supper club that that throwback to the 40s and 50s 
with a very Midwestern meal and and a martini. Uh, eat what those usually aren't too hard to find in Wisconsin. No, they're not. You can usually eat, find a number of those, yeah, and they are fantastic. Eat what is endemic to where you are, and if you don't know what that is, ask someone. You know, what's your mom I, uh, like here cooking? It's I it's do a so lot simple. of uh, traveling for work across about fifteen different states, from out to the Dakotas down to mm-hmm. Kansas, Missouri, over about Ohio, and. There's there's plenty of times when I'm lazy and there's a Texas Roadhouse next door and I'll, I'll go do that. Oh, but shame I, I try on you. and <laughs> shame I'll admit on it. You. I'll admit it. Good I God. I do try and so you're, try you're and traveling to, the, to Kansas City and you're not going to Oklahoma Joe. I guess it's now just called Joe's or Kansas City. When Joe I go to Kansas City, City, I go get I go get barbecue. That's now, what for do you sure. get I do always. Can, tra- what do you get in Kansas? Where are you in Kansas? I'm in Southwest Kansas usually when I'm That's down there. You. A little town called Garden City. Uh, I know Garden City. I, I worked in Wichita years and years and years. Okay. Ago. So I, I don't know what the agriculture on Garden City is. There's a local steakhouse that's that's Pretty hard good? to beat. I mean, there's there plenty of uh, beef raising around there. Yeah, when I lived in Wichita, and again, this was literally in the 70s, there was a local restaurant called the Chateaubriand, which, which that was their specialty, you know, that massive steak. And... I don't know back then if they got it from, you know, Cisco or U.S. Foods, but to a 20-something-year-old working on the radio, that was a hell of a meal. Tough to go wrong with a, with a good, with a good ribeye in, in my uh, estimation, but, you know, well, that's, everybody that's, has their own. Well, it's fascinating. Taste, right? I had a conversation with some friends yesterday. Um, I'm not a ribeye guy. I, I mean, I'll, I'll eat it. It's a good cut of meat. But for me... Too much fat, and I know fat is flavor, but too much fat, uh, you're paying for the bone. Uh, I go for a strip. I like a New York strip, but what I'm I won't doing, complain about a strip either. <laughs> what I'm doing these days and have been for the past year is I'm doing the reverse sear. Are you familiar with that? I am. I mean, that's the only way I'll cook a steak. Yeah, because it's as close to sous vide as you can mm-hmm. get. And, you know, look. To anyone who doesn't know what it is, when you regularly cook a steak at a high temperature, either in the oven or on top of the burner, let's say in a cast iron pan, which everyone says you should do, what you really are doing is you're turning the outside portion of that steak to well done. Because to get to the inside of the meat, you've got to burn the hell out of the outside. Reverse sear cooks the steak slowly at a low temperature, and you end up with pink from side to side. Then you take it out mm-hmm. and throw it into a pan very quickly to get some searing. But you end up with a steak that is whatever doneness you want, uniformly from side to side. Yep. I, I, we, we made ribeye, uh, not ribeye, uh, strip steaks a couple of nights ago from a good butcher. You got to have a good butcher. And it's it's just like heaven. Salt, pepper, goodbye, thank you. Steady. Yeah. Yeah, I always say wall-to-wall pinkness is what I'm looking for when I do my reverse sear. I want, like you said, you don't like to see that, you know, the strip of of, know. You know, uh. of that tan around the outside. The, the place you want to see a ring around the outside is barbecue. You want to see a little red ring around the outside mm-hmm. of the meat. I don't know chemically what that is. I should find out. But that, that is a smoke ring, right? Is I think it is a smoke ring. But I think I, that. I've never... I, Barbecue is is beyond me. I know I like the taste of it. 
Um, the thought of, of cooking it is something I've, I've stayed away from. Like, I, there's people who can do that much better than I can. <laughs> barbecue, look, barbecue is not grilling. Barbecue is a particular kind of cooking, and, and it now embraces everything. I mean, theoretically, barbecue was low and slow, open coal cooking of whole animals. We, we've moved a long way from that. Most barbecue is still low and slow, but some of the most famous is not. I mean, you go to uh, uh, the Rendezvous in Memphis, which is legendary for their ribs. Those are cooked hot and fast in a converted coal chute over uh, a high flame. They're great. When I make ribs at home, uh, and I can't uh, match you know, uh, the rendezvous, but I turn the oven to 500. I throw them in 20 minutes later, I take them out. That's, you know, salt, pepper, and some cumin, but that's mm -hmm. all I do. And if you're buying, especially a St. Louis cut with a lot of fat, it bastes itself and everything's hunky dory. Might, might have to try that now. You've yeah, opened the, my yeah. eyes to a, a new yeah, thought. Just get yourself a rack, turn that oven up to 500, make sure it's blazing hot, salt, pepper, cumin, Throw it in, count to 20 minutes, take it out. That, that sounds even, that sounds kind of idiot proof. I might even be able to pull that off. You know, the vast majority of good real cooking is idiot proof. I do a lot of high heat cooking. I, I cook a whole, uh, a whole chicken at 500. Again, salt and pepper. But what I do with the chicken, when I put it in the oven, I put it in a skillet and I pour an inch or two of chicken stock into the skillet so the chicken doesn't dry yeah. out. It keeps ingesting the liquid. Yeah. You know, at that heat, you get a crispy skin. It's wonderful. Interesting. Interesting. Might have to try that too. You're really opening my eyes to some things hey, here. Hey, tonight right? I'm making sausage and peppers, only I'm not making it in a pan in olive oil the traditional way. I'm making it on a grill sheet so that it's on wire and the drippings fall below. And I put the, the peppers and the onions, marinate them in olive oil briefly, but uh, I put those on. And after they're starting to get soft, I, I put the coil of, I'm having it again for my butcher, great pork sausage with cheese in it, uh, which you guys know, mm. yeah, well, you guys know sausage and cheese. Throw that on the pan. And when it's all done, that's it. It's all you need. Mm, sounds good too. Um, we we got a little bit away. I had a I had a, a, a nice segue when we were talking about pizza. We got off on well, a little different. To, okay, and you know pizza a little angle here, but you can cook pizza on a grill. You know they do that in Rhode Island. Mm hmm. That was when you were talking about pizza and how it it's evolved from mm -hmm. you know when it first came over. One of the other things you talked about was Americanizing different dishes and different cuisines, you know, Chinese, Italian, mm -hmm. uh, whatever else it may be. What is that? Is there a phenomenon behind that? That's, that's something we should stay away from. Like when, no. when pizza gets Americanized, like are, are we missing the boat or is it just a different Avenue of it's those? Different. Great the word I hate the most in food is authentic. The term I will use is as served in the mother country. Okay. Um, Chinese food in America is, is, for the most part, not as it is served in China. It is the Americanized version of Cantonese cuisine because the first Chinese to come to the U.S. came from Canton to gold mine in the gold rush in California. And among the Chinese who came over at that time were uh, 
support staff, if you will, people who opened restaurants and, and stores to to sell stuff to the Chinese workers. And from that, their cuisine evolved as they realized there was a potential market for Americans to eat this stuff. But Americans were not going to eat the entrails that were so popular in Chinese cuisine and in so many cuisines. I mean, we're one of the few cuisines that is wasteful enough to say we're not going to use every part of the animal. Um, so the premise of my book, Food Americana, is that we created our own cuisine by taking from and modifying the cuisines of other countries and cultures, Chinese food, Mexican food. Um, and all of those, Mexican-American is a legitimate cuisine. Chinese-American mm -hmm. is a legitimate cuisine. Um, Italian-American is a legitimate cuisine. They're not the same as um, Chinese food as eaten in China. Although all cuisines evolve. I mean, one of the most popular foods in China among young people in recent years is scrambled eggs and tomatoes cooked in a wok. Um, if you said to someone, well, what do you think authentic Chinese food is? Uh, they wouldn't tell you scrambled eggs. So all <laughs> food evolves over time. And it also evolves based on available ingredients. Um, so I, it bugs me when people are apologetic for enjoying the Americanized version of something. Um, and, you know, our, our food goes elsewhere as well. I, first time I worked in Vienna, I, I said to our local translators, um, when we're done with this story, I want you to take me to your favorite restaurant. They said, sure. I figured, you know, we'd get Spetsly or, or Schnitzel or something. They took me to a Texas ribs joint. <laughs> <laughs> now, in in other countries, when if, if you've had the experience or any knowledge, do you see American uh, food, the foods we'd consider, you know, American, go to those countries and have the same kind of effect where it becomes an American food with a French style to it or a German or well, not so much. It's it depends where it's going. And to, to be quite honest, the best examples of American cuisine don't go elsewhere. Uh, American chain pizza is now available worldwide, but it is seen as an American dish, not an Italian dish. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some American sushi, which is for the most part bigger and goopier than sushi as served in Japan, is now available uh, internationally, but I don't think it's seen as particularly Japanese. Our biggest influence on international eating has unfortunately been fast food. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when I lived in Budapest, McDonald's had just opened up and it was the place to go. When you're on, on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, um, I don't recall if there's a uh, McDonald's there, but there's certainly a huge Burger King that does just a killer business. Um, and you know, that's when you say to someone, what's American food, they'll tell you hot dogs and hamburgers. Yeah. We like hot dogs. We like hamburgers, um, hot dogs and hamburgers, both descending from German cuisine, but, but nonetheless, our cuisine is much broader than that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, lobster rolls, for example, are, are now available all over the country because of the, um, the processing plants that uh, pick and, and freeze lobster uh, immediately. And uh, I actually do have a little knowledge on lobster. I worked in a, uh, a lobster distribution company um, just outside Washington, D.C. For, for about a year right okay, out of college. So you know what I'm talking about. Yep. 
Yeah, a few years ago, Down East Magazine in Maine held a competition for the best lobster roll in America, and it was won by Freshies in Salt Lake City. Now, <laughs> full disclosure, the husband and wife who owned the place came from Massachusetts, but still, you know, and, and uh, there are now syndicated um, lobster, syndicated franchise lobster trucks all across the country. Um, and look, it's still not as good as a fresh lobster roll eaten on a dock in Kenny Bunkport. Um, but it ain't bad. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the company I work for, we were bringing fresh lobsters from Maine down to the D.C. Well, Maine area. Maine Canada? Maine? Uh, mostly Maine. There were some times when you had to um, get some Canadian, but the, the idea was, was all Maine. If, well, the, if it uh, could all be... The whole lobster spawning area is moving north because of the warming of American waters. Hold on one minute while I close the door so that the singing of my beagle um, does not provide a continuous soundtrack. Not a problem. uh, I'll keep talking if you're not going to edit. What else you want to know? No, uh, I was going to say you talked about um, fast food and kind of how prevalent it is. In other countries, you know, our, our American fast food, and it's, you know, I, I travel a lot. I'm probably driving 40 some thousand miles a year, you know, and it's, I try my best to stay away from it. But sometimes, you know, you get in the middle of nowhere and you haven't eaten in a few hours and you're like, eh, McDonald's oh, is and, right but there. Wait, hold can... on. Let's acknowledge one other thing. We've been raised with fast food and at a particular moment on a particular day, a fast food burger is perfect. Now, yeah, I'm not saying I don't enjoy it. I I'm trying, eat I just it every it day the of the week. <laughs> but see, for me, well, there's two levels of fast food. The fast food available everywhere. For me, you drive through Burger King for a Whopper Jr., then you drive through McDonald's for the fries because the burgers are better at Burger King. At uh, Burger King, the fries are better at McDonald's. Um, now, in a perfect world, you go to In-N-Out, which you mm-hmm. can only get in California. And I think they're starting to expand a little bit. But... Uh, now, is that an incredible burger? I think so. Um, when we were shooting in California last, we had them like every night. Um, but I don't really know if they're that great or if it's their inaccessibility that, that makes mm-hmm. it special. Uh, back before you were born, Coors did not distribute beer east of the Rockies. And that made Coors, if you got it smuggled in, very special. But once mm-hmm. it became available, it occurred to many of us that Coors is a shitty beer. Um, well, I have a lot of my friends, whenever I drive somewhere near them, they're like, oh, get me a, a case of Spotted Cow. I was like, well, I, can get you, I can get you a case of much better beer than Spotted Cow. Yeah, it's just that's uh, the one that's become popular for some reason. I Look, um, so much of it is random. So, so much of like, why did PBR, Pabst Blue Ribbon, become hipster cool for a while? Because some hipster uh, decided to try it and put it on his Instagram or his TikTok or whatever. And, you know, so much of food trends has nothing to do with the taste or quality of the food. It has to do with hipness. And I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah, it's it is funny when things like that, you, you try something and you're like, man, I know everybody loves this, or at least they say they do, but I don't see it. Well, and, look, at the risk know, of being shot, I feel that way about the Barbie movie and the uh, <laughs> the 12-hour-long uh, uh, something of the flower moon. I, I lasted <laughs> 20 minutes into that. So, 
I haven't got to that one yet. I, I'm I'm working on uh, watching that one here sometime. I, I had lunch with like a friend said. of mine a few weeks ago who lives in Buenos Aires. He was up in New York, and we're sitting at lunch. He goes, "Did you watch that um, Scorsese film?" I said, "I lasted literally about forty minutes." He said, "Good, so did I," and that was that. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've struggled with being able to carve out like, you know, the three and a half. And I'm like, by the time I need to stop and go to the bathroom and make food for myself, I'm like, I need to put 44 hours out of, out of my day to watch it. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it was, I'm well, struggling no, to get there. Not to be a, a, a mean movie critic, but by the time I stopped watching that movie, the real plot I'd read about hadn't even started yet. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I think this part got cut off when we had our, our little technical difficulty the first time. But okay. um, you mentioned uh, stadium food um, in sports stadiums. Is mm-hmm. there uh, is there you know a, a particular area that you found that has better stadium food? Is there you know any one well, place for, in the country that you found that has the best, or is it kind of like a regional thing where there's they've all got their delicacies? It's for the most part, a regional thing. For the most part, it's better in cities that are known for a food culture. Um, I think it's Seattle. I think at Mariners games, you can get um, deep fried grasshoppers. Um, meantime, I'm sure that at County Stadium, you can get a hell of a brat. Uh, yeah. At Fenway, I'm sure you can get a lobster roll these days. Um, there is, um, I hate to use this word, but uh, quote, gourmet, unquote, food available at pretty much every stadium, usually um, skewed toward regional specialties. And I would wager that the best-selling item is still a hot dog. Yeah. We went to a, a Flyers game just, just a couple of days ago in Chicago, and mm-hmm. my wife got a, a little Giordano's deep dish, and, I, and she's like, what do you want? I'm like, just Give me a hot dog. I'm going to have a hot dog. I'm going to have a couple beers. Yeah, but I'm wait, watch hold on. That, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not fair because Chicago dogs done in the Chicago style drag through the garden with celery salt on that terrific poppy, it's poppy seed. Yeah, poppy seed bun. Mm-hmm. That's a special experience. That's not a generic hot dog. I just got a regular one. Just a, a hot dog and a little ketchup was all I got. Dude, I didn't do, I'm not so big on the... I'm not wait, big wait, on wait, the wait, whole wait, 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 Chicago wait, wait. one. <laughs> Hold on, time out. You put friggin' ketchup on a hot dog? I do, yes, sir. You should be shot. <laughs> what what uh, what should go on a hot dog then? Mustard, and then if you want ah. sauerkraut, but or a Chicago dog has mustard. It doesn't have ketchup. It's got yeah, that I'm not a Chicago green. dog guy. There's just there's too much. I'm done. This interview's over. That's it. Forget <laughs> it. Actually, the the best thing in Chicago, of course, is Chicago beef, uh, Italian yes. beef sandwiches. When I worked yes. in Chicago for NBC back in the early 80s, we were in the Merchandise Mart, a classic old building. And about a quarter mile down the street, down Orleans, was Mr. Beef, which is the inspiration for the show The Bear. And yes, I, every I just week saw two, like a Facebook video about that. Yeah, every couple of weeks, the entire bureau would get up at noon and walk down to Mr. Beef and we'd all have either sausages or Chicago Italian beef sandwiches and we'd sit there were no seating inside I think they may have some now but you'd sit on a on a, a picnic table covered with pigeon shit and you'd have one of the great meals of your life oh it was wonderful it was, that's a great food town 
Yes, yes. It, while you mentioned that beef, uh, since you're in the, the the South Jersey, you're a little ways away from it. But do you have a do you have a feeling on cheesesteaks, Philly cheesesteaks? And yeah, I don't eat them. The no. real uh, the real Philadelphia dish is not the cheesesteak. It's the roast pork sandwich, which mm-hmm. was invented at a place called I believe it was invented at John's. Um, and what it is for anyone who doesn't know is a crusty roll of the same sort that you'd have a cheesesteak on, but onto that roll goes succulent roasted pork sliced relatively thin, um, good provolone, and then broccoli rob that has been um, sautéed with garlic. Now, originally, it didn't have broccoli rob. When it was first invented, it was spinach. But broccoli rob has pretty much become the standard. That is the Philadelphia sandwich. That that can be a death row meal. I make that at home uh, frequently. Uh, out of, I, I get a pork tenderloin. Um, okay. I was going to say, you know, how do you go fine, with But cheesesteaks tend to be, to my way of thinking, too salty. And the beef doesn't jump out at you. It's okay. So, you know, put, put some whiz on a bun and knock yourself out. It's, it's not, I'll, I'll eat it. <laughs> in fact, I, I helped judge a cheesesteak competition in the last couple of years, but no, nah, it's the roast pork you want. That uh, I've, I've heard that many times from, from people. And I, I love a roast pork too. I do myself prefer the cheesesteak. I, I, maybe it's the saltiness that I like. Um, well, and to each the, his the, own. The conglomeration yeah, of what, what I'm told or what I've read is that Geno's and Pat's in Philly are, are really for out of towners, and yeah. that many of the locals prefer a place called Jim's. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I worked with a guy who was from the Philly area, and he always said Delisandros. He's like, no yeah, Geno's, Pat's, Delisandros. Everybody's was his got spot. their favorite. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple times here your book. Uh, yes. And I, I read the, I read the cover. I didn't get, I've been just kind of crazy with work with, and stuff, but, uh, get, shoot me a rundown here and kind of walk us through what it's about. Cause it did sound very interesting. Well, let's see. Can you see that? There it is. Yes. Ode Americana. Um, this was my exploration of how we created American cuisine out of the foods of other countries and cultures. And I have chapters on pizza, Mexican, barbecue, fried chicken, sushi, bagels, wings and things, uh, burgers, Chinese, um, seafood, and ice cream. And I explore the roots of those cuisines as they became part of American cuisine. And I explore what's going on with them today. I take you to to various restaurants. I talk to some terrific people um, who are making terrific food. And I have a recipe uh, at the end of each chapter that comes from one of the restaurants I've I've talked with. And the research was great. I went to the Memphis in May barbecue championships. I went to pizza school with Tony Gemignani in San Francisco. Um, I rolled up my sleeves. By the way, I was, without a doubt, the um, dumb kid in the pizza class. Uh, <laughs> man, that making a good pizza the right way is hard. Uh, but it, uh, I put my daughter, my wife and I put, put our daughter through seven years at Columbia University so she could get an MFA, which means 
I'm so deep in debt. I need every one of your listeners or viewers <laughs> to, to purchase 10 or 15 copies of this book. It's Food Americana and it's on Amazon. And I promise you, I'm proud of it. Awesome. Uh, wings. You mentioned wings in there. Uh, wings is a, is a soft spot for me. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's another one that, you know, coming from Northeast Pennsylvania, close enough to Buffalo, it felt like, again, mm -hmm. you get a good wing at many of the the bars and, and the dive bars would all have good wings. And um, while I found some good wings, you know, out here and in the Midwest in general, it feels like that the style of wing I grew up with is a little different, you know, back there. Just, it, I don't know, that feels very regional to me as well. Well, that depends completely on who's cooking them. I mean, when I make them at home, I think I'm pretty close to Buffalo. I, I, I you know, I, I deep fry them in oil. None of this baked BS. Uh, mm -hmm. To be good, a wing has to be deep fried uh, in oil. And then it's about the sauce you want to use. I mean, you want to be honest to Buffalo. It's, it's basically um, Frank's hot sauce and butter. Yeah, with uh, butter, right? Yeah, well, you got to have the butter. Uh, the butter is what, what makes that and is probably the item that is being left out when you, when you find yourself with a second-rate wing. But wings are wonderful, done right. Yeah, there's it's there's few things in my life that I think I enjoy more than uh, a dive bar, uh, a dozen wings, and just a just a light beer. I don't need anything special. A Miller Light, a Coors Light, a Bud Light, and it, a dozen it, wings and a game on a TV. And there's, it, it there's not much better in my life. Look, food is a memory issue. Um, the other day, um, I bought frozen pigs in blankets. You know what a pig in a blanket is? Little, I do. Little tiny hot dog wrapped in dough. Pigs in blankets have always been a staple at Jewish catered affairs, like receptions for bar mitzvahs. They're, they're just kind of, they're there. And so I have a childhood connection with them. And in fact, you know what? It wasn't even the frozen ones. We were at dinner at a very nice restaurant in New York, my wife and my daughter and I, just the other night. And they had pigs and blankets as an appetizer. And we ordered them. And it was like going back in time. It was fantastic. Now, culinarily, is it a great thing? <laughs> Not necessarily. Although you could make an argument that basically it is a sausage in a version of dough. What's wrong with that? You dip mm -hmm. it in some, some deli mustard, it's a good thing. You'll never hear me complain about a pig in a blanket. There you go. Uh, David, I think we've done close to an hour here now. So uh, I think we've we've touched on a, a ton of great stuff here. Is there is there anything you want to want to leave us on as we kind of wrap this thing up here? Yeah. Don't go to a chain restaurant if you have a choice. Mom and Pops making better food, providing mm -hmm. a real atmosphere, and trying to scrape by on the tightest margin in the world are the people you should be supporting. And there's nothing that says that more than the fact that, like, Applebee's tries to market themselves as your neighborhood pub. They're not. Go find a neighborhood pub. Okay? That's where the good stuff is. That's a perfect message to end it on. So, uh, David, thank you again. Your book, Food Americana, on uh, you can find it on Amazon. Yep. Um, so hopefully everybody goes and check that out. 
thank you very much. I appreciate your time. This was this was a lot of fun. I I enjoyed it. So well, thank so did you I. very much. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yes, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Right, hot off a fresh loss here. Uh, a tough weekend for us Flyer fans. We're recording this. I don't exactly know when this is making it to the pod because I've got a lot of stuff kind of backed up here. Um, this is Sunday, February 25th. Uh, the Flyers have just lost to the Penguins uh, to cap off a weekend of losing to the Rangers and the Penguins. Um, a weekend that I believe Troy Totos was crucial. Uh, must win to each man. What was it that he was saying to us? Necessary. Necessary. <laughs> must win. Necessary. All the same thing a bunch. Um, not the best weekend for our Flyers, guys. Not the best weekend. The best thing is when you call it a must win or a necessary win. You got you got more games to win after this. So, <laughs> um, I think the most positive thing I'll take from this weekend is like the Flyers are back, man. They're playing meaningful games. We're watching. They're playing division rivals tight. Two one goal games this weekend, and and they're in it. They still got a cushion. They. I think we're fine. We're fine. Fine. Granted that the Flyers-Penguins rivalry isn't what it used to be. Right? It's not like the days of Giroux and Voracek where guys are running around trying to take each other's heads off. But still, these, these two games this weekend were very tight, very well-played games, except for the goaltending in today's game. Obviously, I mean, <laughs> that was a, that was a big factor. But, but again, very, very good games, I thought. But they walked away with zero points on the weekend, which – if you're trying to push and hold that third playoff spot like the Flyers are trying to do, you can't do that. You gotta get you gotta get some points this weekend and they they failed to do that. Yeah. It, it, it yes, Truck, you raised your we're hand. Up, no, we're up five. Still got oh, five points. Yeah, question. I'm looking at the stats here. I was gonna say we are still up five. We've played one the, more game than the Devils. Um, but the Devils, I just don't see it. The Devils minus twelve in the differential. Like they're not like playing great hockey. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It, it felt like a missed opportunity this weekend because they had the Rangers who were playing some great hockey. They've won their last 10 games. They had them on the ropes for a lot of that game. They gave up fucking seven goals today and only lost by one. Like, yeah. I don't know. These, these felt like pretty golden opportunities that, you know, Hey, again, it, this is the rebuild year, right? Like we're still in the rebuild. Exactly. If you would have, if you would have told me, so what we recorded last what in November, first of November, Something and like we were that. we were all talking about like we were looking at playoff odds, and it was like this, that, and the other thing. Like we're watching meaningful hockey now, coming into the last week of February, into March. Daniel Breer doesn't know what the hell to do because you know, do you sell guys? Do you do you try to take a run and? And win a playoff round. Like, this is a great spot to be in. It's basically, like, free for us, for fans. And then it also, like, instills a bunch of trust in being like, hey, like, maybe they're doing this thing right. They got some good guys in place. We got some guys coming in. Like, I love it. Like, I wore a jersey today in my house to watch a game. Like, we're back. We're back. We, we need to say that every time you are back, that the Flyers go on like a four or five game losing streak. Yeah, big skid coming up. <laughs> I mean, their next couple games aren't like like easy games. Like the Lightning, 
they do have the Caps and then the Senators, so nothing crazy with those two. But like, they do have to play the Lightning next. So Lightning there's a real home? easy three Lightning game stretch. Home? home on yeah. Tuesday, I think. Yeah, yep, home on then Tuesday. They, then they get them again later in March in Tampa. They've got two games against the Bruins coming up. Another one against the Rangers coming up. They've got a tough stretch coming, and it'll be they got the Hurricanes in late wow. March. They have the That's Panthers. They're gonna they're gonna play the Hurricanes in the first round of the playoffs. They're gonna beat them. The only problem is, I mean, okay, that would have been fine when you had the tandem of Carter Hart <laughs> and Sam Erson, but now that Carter Hart's out of the picture for other reasons, you know, now that you've put Pedersen or possibly Felix Sandstrom into the picture, like who knows what you're going to get out of your second goalie? So it's not they don't have a defined number one now that you've lost Carter Hart, and I, I think that's what hurts them the most. Hey, I'm new here. I'm new here, but I'm going to argue a little bit on define number one. Eh. He's yeah. been balling. Sam Harrison? Yeah, Sam Harrison. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's the number one. He's the number one. And I think he was, from... Like, I almost... And again, I'm an idiot. Like, I don't know shit about hockey. But, like, he was looking like he was better than Hart, like, when they were both playing. Early on, yeah. In in looking back, like, whatever happened with Carter Hart, like, happened, right? But with him... Electric. Him trying to deal with playing a professional sport and mm-hmm. dealing with everything that's going on, like, damn, like the fact that he was able to play games, knowing that he, he could get was probably yeah. going to get arrested, <laughs> and they were still putting him in the goal on a nightly basis, like, was actually kind of crazy. And then once he got taken away, like the team kind of fell apart for what those four or five games, and yeah. Was, then they went like a little run after that. Yeah, correct. I think that was the first yeah. time this year you were in. By the way, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. But I think yeah, Sam Harrison's there to stay, and they and they have like all these like fucking Russian guys who are out there waiting in the wings as like these goalie draft picks and stuff. So they were obviously, I think, <clears throat> I think planning everything that I read. They're like planning for Carter Hart's kind of dismissal, right? And they have these guys out here. And, well, I the think one guy, one guy dude, got swept up by the Red Army. They wouldn't let him leave Russia, dude. He got he got <laughs> taken into a white van, and no one like he like they're like, okay, you got to play for the Red Army team, man. <laughs> what was what was yeah, his name? What, what, was, what was that guy? Fedotov. Yeah, Ivan Fedotov. He's he over was, there. He was trying. He was just... trying to come back. He signed his contract with the Flyers. They took a picture of him signing his contract. He was like, "Yep, I'm coming over." And all of a sudden, they see him taking in, like, he's getting pushed into a white van by, like, five guys. And they're like, yeah, he's going to stay here for a while. He's in the Donbass region right now. <laughs> um, wielding a Kalashnikov. <laughs> in the Gulag. I didn't have much success in the Gulag today, in case you guys were wondering. Played a little sports on this morning. <laughs> I got wiped out <laughs> in the Gulag. <laughs> Oh, shit. What was it? oh, they did all this 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 weekend. They did without Konechny too. Like that that's something true. that should be remembered. Like Konechny, uh, Konechny gets injured. What Friday in practice was the was the story that came out? Maybe yeah. Ran in, ran into Mark Stahl, dude. That fucking guy. I I'm pissed that Drysdale got hurt today because now we got to deal with some other like. Whatever happened to Drysdale didn't look good, but with that happening, now we got to deal with like other fucking guys this year. Like, 
Mark Stahl, and I mean Zamula is I think decent, but damn, Drysdale seemed to have like put a nice. I don't it's like wrinkles, a calming right presence. Word. Yeah, like a good calming presence to the to the back line, and like, yep. and he's really kind of settled it down and like allowed yep. other things to flow off of it. Could play yeah, a lot of minutes. On him. Yep. But yeah, I mean, so Mark Stahl, guy's thirty-seven years old. They they brought him in on a one-year deal, kind of be that veteran presence to all these young guys: Cam York, Eager Zamula. And and now now the fact that that stall injured Konechny and now you got Drysdale out. It, I don't. They don't have that number one defined D man either, and that's that's an area where they're struggling. And you can look at Travis Sanheim and be like, yeah, he's your number one. But even Travis Sanheim on most top end playoff contending teams, he might be a third pairing or second pairing at best. He. I, I think that's in the area that the, struggle, that the Flyers struggle in, for sure. Is Mark Stahl like a Penguins agent? Like, planted? <laughs> Could be. Dude, think about it. Jordan Stahl played with him for, what, 10 years? I don't know. And he plays for the Hurricanes, so you never know. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> so, I think my outlook on the Flyers, future. this is like... Uh, I, they're at I mean, least a year ahead of schedule, right? Yes, and this is a gift, right? If they make the playoffs and we get to watch hockey into April, like late April, that'll be awesome. Because like, and like, just the experience that it gets these guys like coming in, we're we're in a great place. And I I, I think the fan, like you look at the games are playing at home and like people are showing up and buying tickets and. It's just great to see people in the building. Like, I can't wait to go in another what, month. We're going to a game, Hunter. Yeah. And just, just like meaningful hockey is like so awesome. Like, I haven't been to a game since COVID when they had like a third of the capacity and it was a joke. So, like, it's just, just a win win for Philly fans. Um, but and I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I was, I was just saying, say, they I locked me up for a while recently. Oh, yeah, too. he'll be there. And they, they gave him an A, and they got Couturier, who's there for however long, like next eight like years. seven more years or something like that, right? Yeah. He's, like, he's my age, and I just feel like a moron watching him. Because <laughs> it, was, it was funny, because he came into the league, and I was 18 when I went to college. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's my age. And now he's, like, the captain of the team, and I'm, like, struggling to just do shit around the house. And he's still out there. He's, like, now captain of the team, so... But I wanted to hear about about your first NHL experience. I know you were down in Chicago for that. Yeah, so you guys were fucking with me because I didn't get there for warmies, as you were telling me, and that it was a rookie move. <laughs> but it was a fucking just a disaster getting there because uh, Chicago sucks. Like, it's awful. Um, so we we I, I picked the roommate up from work at 2.52, and we are hammered down. On the way down there, I'm <laughs> I'm driving aggressively on the way down, and I'm making good time. And we get to 16 miles from our hotel, and the shitty thing was we had to drive past the ho- past the arena, past the United Center mm-hmm. to get to the hotel, and then come back. And we were 16 miles out, and it was just fucking red lights. And it took us an hour to go the last 16 miles. Like, we could have, had there been no traffic, we would have made it there in, like, an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes. And it took us, like, 
two and a half, two forty five, something in that range. Cool. And we get to the hotel, we take our bags up. Uh, the roommate changes real quick, and like we leave, and we get there, and like you know, we get in, and and luckily they had moved, so it was a TNT game. So instead of being a seven o'clock uh, puck drop. You know, it's listed as 6.30, but TNT takes forever to get into the game. So, luckily, we it's like 6.45 before puck drops. So we can get into the arena, grab some beers, grab a hot dog, and, like, get to the seats. But uh, it was it was sweet, man. Like, that was my first NHL game ever. The, the way I compare it is, like, if you go to a football game, like, football games are fun to go to. And, like, they're fun to do, like, once in a while. But, like, the viewing experience is way better at home. Hmm. Like, if you're at a football game, like, the experience of being there is sweet, but, like, actually watching the play, oh, 100% way better, home. like, being at home. <laughs> like, being in the stadium is cool and fun and stuff like that, but if you're, like, really just interested in watching football, like, it's way better to watch it on TV. Yeah. Watching hockey in person is awesome. way better in person. <laughs> like, it's sick. And, like, you get to see things that, like, you don't really notice on TV. Like, the thing I really noticed was... The way you saw dudes, like, heads moving, like, in person, like, they're coming down the ice and their heads are like, oh, they're looking this way, they're looking that way, like, they're just, like, and they're fucking flying Dude, around the ice. Dude, it is so, so fast. And I had been to a, a Wisconsin hockey game earlier this year, and they're pretty good this year. Like, I think at the time I went, they were ranked two in the nation, and I think right now they're ranked, like, six or seven or something like that. And that was cool, but, like, the difference between that and oh, a pro man. hockey game is so different. Like different level. The speed, yeah. like the way they're like looking around the ice and like trying to find the puck and like and, all that was it was dude, sick, man. And it like it's such a small space and there's yeah. ten guys out there flying. And like as soon as you get the puck, like you could get smoked. <laughs> like they're just Yeah, like viewing that in person, like yeah, you just it's totally different than watching it on TV. Like on TV, it's like, oh yeah, like here they go, and can't really see the puck, and like yeah. But then in person, like there's guys flying around and hitting the boards and falling over, and like it's just crazy. The hits you don't see on TV that you see in person too. Oh yeah, like the hits that like get out of like the the camera frame, like you know the puck starts going this way, and you catch like somebody like you you can see yeah. like someone kind of gets hit like off on the <laughs> side, and like when you're there. And because you told me, you're like, dude, just sit on the one end instead of sitting in the upper deck, like in the middle, sit on the end that the Flyers shoot at twice. And we kind of got fucked in the third period because it got dominated by Chicago. They went into like shell mode. mode. Yeah. (laughs) But like that first period, like you'd like the puck would start going the other way and someone would just get laid the fuck out like up the boards and it'd be like, God damn, it was sweet. Yeah. I mean, Chicago wasn't such a clusterfuck to get to. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to a game there every year. I still may go to one every year. Like, once I mean, a year, only I get probably deal with that. Yeah. 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 I wish Minneapolis was a little closer to me. Because What's that's that, like, like such four a, hours? Yeah, it's such an easier city to navigate, though. And, like, you can get to places and, in, in, uh, like, stay in a hotel in Minneapolis and, like, get into their, like, um, like their inside walks. And, like, oh, never wow. have to be outside and just, like, walk through, like, these, like, pathways that, like, go from, like, hotels to uh, office buildings over to like the arena and like you may only have to be outside for like three minutes 
but yeah, Chicago, Chicago's a fucking clusterfuck. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go back in the fall. Oh, for work to Chicago? Yeah. Might Where do you stay? Room. I stayed, like, a block or two from, like, the Miracle Mile or whatever they call it. Oh, like, like Michigan just... Ave. So I, I yeah. stayed, like, right downtown. Where'd you guys stay? I'm pretty downtown. I'm trying to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google search Michigan Avenue right now and see how far away we stayed from that. I stayed, like, six blocks from Trump Tower. I was literally I saw Trump Tower like walking home because I sent you that Snapchat. Cause like oh, that's shit. Right. We way I was way uptown of, of Michigan Ave. I was like six miles uptown of that. Because mm. I was like, like just north of Soldier Field. On the river. It's a lake. No, like Oh yeah, the river's right there too. The river's right there too, yeah. Trump Tower's right on the river. Yeah. Yeah, cities are a shit show. I know you texted us, but, like, I can't believe people live here. Like, I can't Dude. believe I, like, I'm there for, like, a day and a half or two, and I'm like, people do this shit every fucking day? Dude, I, we got into our, ho- like, even the hotel room sucked. We got into our <laughs> hotel room, and we walked in, and we're like, holy shit, this was small. And, like, I picked, I had a, I have a ton of Hilton points. So I was like, oh, we're gonna stay at, like, a nice hotel. Like, where'd you like, stay? Right- uh, it's called the Palmer House. Oh yeah, that's a nice one. Yeah, it sucked. Like the ho- really? the room was tiny. Like the room was small. Like the size of my bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's when you're pretty... on, like when you're that's sitting on the to toilet, like the door was like you could like barely shut the door. Like if you were like we're sitting on the toilet and like wanted to shut the door, you'd have to like squeeze your knees up and be like, eh, get it in there. <laughs> Sign you to do some pushbacks. Hmm? Push back from the table every once in a while. Ah. <laughs> ah, fuck. Well, I mean, I'm good. The vent sesh. I think the Flyers are back. Like, I, th- I think they're going to make the playoffs. We're going to go on a little run. Got to... Just got to keep doing what they're doing, man. Like, keep Cal Peterson out of the net. Get... Get Arison in there, maybe bring up Sandstrom, sell Peterson to the minors, and I think they're going to do it. They've got Whoa. through the stretch where they were playing like the every other night stretch. Like I'm just looking at the schedule. There's a you know they've got a day off between now and Tuesday. They've got then till Friday. Then they have a back to back on with the Senators and the Caps on Friday, Saturday. But then like then it's Monday, well, then it's Thursday. That's both home, both home both home i think they'll, they're, they'll in, be all they're, right. they're at the caps but like oh, looking man. at the rest of the That's season like there's there's enough of there's like some gaps in there that they can they can go with airson a lot more than like having to get to the backup it looks like but yeah there are some there are some tough games coming up for him down the stretch are you guys going to the blackhawks game is that the one you guys are going to yeah yeah and Chicago's not a very exciting team to watch outside of Bedard. Oh, I'm, I was going to say, the other thing I want to say, Bedard is sick. Yeah, yeah he is. Like, he was doing some things out there. Like, I was like, damn, he didn't score. I, did he score? No. I don't think he scored. But he had yeah, a couple of, like, about... moves that I was like, 
damn. Like, my he's, man is slick out there. He is very flashy, but the rest of the team is kind of very dull. They don't play in a, an extended Yeah, they're just not very good. But that's what the Flyers are missing, right? Right now, like, they don't have anyone who's, like, the guy. They have a, yeah. yeah. You know, like, Tippett's good, and but he's not going to, he's not out there every shift. It's like, what's Tippett going to do, right? Like, if you watch McDavid or something with the Oilers, like, every time he touches the puck, it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, we saw that a couple, <laughs> a week or so ago or whatever when he had the hat trick in the, the one period. What do they call yeah. it? The natural hat trick? The natural hat trick, yeah. But uh, they'll get there. I mean, we're watching meaningful hockey here and coming into March. I think and I, and I think they're going to do it. Like I I hope we get to do a little uh little playoff preview here in 4 weeks. I mean, if they just don't fall apart, right? Exactly. Just I mean, they've got a cushion. Just keep winning some games. Like I, I, said, like I think said, they're going to do it. 5 games ahead of the Devils. They're 5 points ahead of the Devils. They've only played the one Devils more game than stink. them. The Devils yeah. stink. Like the two teams chasing them have point differentials of Minus 12, minus 31, and then the Pens are plus 15. They're seven but points But the Penguins back. don't score. Look at the – the Penguins don't score. Though. Like That's fucking today. Well, yeah. Man. And they barely won, and they barely won. So mm-hmm. I think the Flyers are in good shape. We're going to see some playoff hockey, I hope. And, yeah, we're going to be watching some hockey in April that matters. It's going to be awesome. Well, Hopefully we're doing that. Hopefully we're doing that. Um, I think we covered it today, boys, didn't we? Yeah. I think so. It's not going to be an impressive run in April, but uh, hopefully they can <laughs> What do you mean, better. dude? If they play the Hurricanes, the Hurricanes are not that good either. They could knock them off. And then all bets are off. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in, too. I, I just... All in, buddy. Dude, It's we're talking before the deadline here. You don't know who they're going to sell. Yeah, are they selling Walker? Does Walker get dealt? Uh, he's one of the hot pieces right now on the team, and and Danny Briere has said pretty much everyone is up for grabs. I mean, they're not shopping. So so Scott Lawton, they give him the A, all that bullshit. They're not shopping him around. But if a call comes in that they can't, uh, they can't decline. You know, they're gonna they're gonna take that call and ship them out. It's it's that it's that simple. Because this team yep. is not going to win a cup. Will it be great? Okay, okay, okay. Is it going to be great to watch them in the playoffs if they make it? Absolutely, 100% yes. But they're not a cup-winning team. The upside is what? They win a playoff series? Like, that's that's the high-end option. Or two, or three, <laughs> or we win the cup. You never know. Yeah, that's probably the point. When when Troy's calling for Stanley Cup victories this year, that's probably the point where we end this thing today. <laughs> hey, I'm not an analyst. I'm a fan. <laughs> it could happen. You guys are the number one hockey analyst for OWH. I don't know what you guys are talking about. All right. Well, I'm going to bed tonight <laughs> thinking that the Flyers have a chance. Hunter, if you want to think otherwise, it's been good knowing you. Yeah. King Mush over there. He is. He's the King Mush. All right, boys. Uh, any final thoughts before we leave here? 
No, I think we're good. Go Flyers. All right, boys, let's go Flyers. Okay, we're doing an everything else segment here uh, for this week. We had a lot going on so far this episode, so uh, everything else. Uh, the Tar Heels. <clears throat> the Tar Heels pick up a win uh, in an exciting game over Virginia on Saturday. Uh, first time they've won to Virginia in eight tries. Eight tries. First time they won to Virginia. Uh, they went 54-44. to 44. Um, For just a little bit of context, also on Saturday, so 54 to 44, that's 96 points. Also on Saturday, Alabama and Kentucky played. Alabama scored 95 points, 95, and they lost the game by 22, 2-2. They scored almost the exact amount of points as Virginia and UNC and lost the game by 22. Two points. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, elsewhere uh, around the top 25, uh, there was a fun, fun game with Houston and Baylor. Uh, Houston got out early. It was the uh, the first game of the day, the 11 o'clock uh, central time zone game. And Houston was up like 25-10 or something like that. Uh, it took a 41-25 lead at halftime. And I said to the room, I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed. I was hoping this was, I was expecting this to be a better game. And then the second half happened. And Baylor made it a basketball game. And it was fun as hell coming down the stretch. Uh, Houston had a free throw to go up three with like 16 seconds left, my notes tell me. Uh, they missed it. They missed it. Baylor came down and got an and one and missed it. But they tied the game, and then Houston made a three at the buzzer. No good. No good. Didn't count. We went to overtime. Houston ended up taking over, but, man, for a game that I was very excited about, then very disappointed about, then very excited about again, uh, that was that was a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, Duke goes down at Wake Forest. Uh, Wake Forest rushes the court. As a uh, as a big proponent of uh, rush the court, uh, you'll you'll remember I went on a passion a passion speech uh, about rushing the court in uh, in full throated uh, support of it. That was a tough look for me. That was a tough look. Uh, I'm I'm still in support of the idea. The execution can get tough. I said at the time, unless somebody's out there just absolutely decking somebody, I'm in for it. Well, I think this this qualifies as absolutely decking somebody. Cal Filipowski rolls his ankle and is maybe out for the year. Uh, not, I, I mean, they said he's maybe out for the year. I don't think that's the case. I think that's fucking Duke crybabies being Duke crybabies. And John Shire went on a, a big rant. And, uh, I think... Uh, <clears throat> Did maybe my friend Coach Slano say something, or did he retweet something? Or maybe I just saw something else. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know why I attribute that to Coach Slano. Um, if I if it was correct, maybe it was. Um, but it's going to be funny to see the people who are all in support of uh, court storming like, be all against it now. I'm not just going to flip on that. I, I like court storming. I think it's fun. I think it's college kids having a good time. I'm not going to be all against it. This was a bad look. That was a bad situation. There probably need to be some safeguards. I will agree. You gotta let you gotta get everybody else off the court. 
you got to get the players off the court because you can't have people getting hurt. That, and again, I, when I said that, unless someone's getting decked, and this counts as that, uh, you got you got to have the safety of the players in mind. If if the players getting hurt, and that's a trend, and you know, share was when people are saying mean things to them, like fuck off with the mean things. Like get fucking tougher skin, get tougher skin. Uh, but if someone's getting like legitimately hurt, that can't happen. That obviously can't happen. So there need to be some safeguards, and it's probably going to get curtailed. And, hey, what do you do? That's just the way it goes. Uh, The Heels, uh, moving forward, the Heels have uh, Miami coming to town on Monday night. So we'll have the result of that before this pod post. And they host uh, NC State uh, the following Saturday. Um, And then just two games remaining after that. We'll talk more about those going forward. Uh, Host Notre Dame and then at Duke. So home for three of the last four. Uh, Miami, I think, is not great. Yeah, six and eleven in conference. Uh, Notre Dame, that's that's a couple games out. Um, not good. Also, uh, and then NC State is okay, nine and seven in conference, seventeen and ten overall. I don't think they're envisioned as being in uh, in in the NCAA tournament. I think for the ACC, it's UNC, Duke, Virginia, and Wake Forest. Uh, Clemson, I think, had been someone they envisioned as being in as well. I think they, I think, with the Wake Forest win over Duke, that's kind of moved them up to have five teams in the dance. So, um, a couple games. North Carolina should win out and go to Duke. Uh, you know, hopefully, with the the chance to uh, not cement a number one seed, but put them in a good position as long as they don't get bounced in the first round of the ACC tournament going forward. Uh, PGA Tour, PGA Tour here, uh, Jake Knapp, Jake Knapp is your winner. Uh, he shoots an, an even par round today to outlast Sammy Valamaki, Valamaki, my man was out there with a mullet and a mustache, uh, just looking good, uh, did not watch a lot of this. The Mexico Championship was was not high on my list of, of things to do. Um, uh, Jake Knapp was as as recent as I think a couple of years ago, two years ago, was a nightclub bouncer and uh, brought home the win. Uh, he hit two fairways today, and he is now the first player since uh, on the PGA Tour since 1983 to hit two fairways or less in the final round and win. Uh, he started the day with a four shot lead or five shot lead, four shot lead over Valimaki. And I'm probably totally butchering that name. I had that. Uh, I had the golf mostly on the little TV today. Uh, it got some big TV screen time, but not much. I mean, you look. You look at this leaderboard. Uh, Jake Knapp, Val Maggie, Jay Lauer. Who is Jay Lauer? Justin Lauer, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, Steven Yeager. He's he's been up there occasionally. CT Pan, uh, Robert McIntyre, P. Raj. Patrick Rogers, no Doug Gim, uh, that's Carson Young as C Young, uh, Eric Van Roy. Like this was not a strong field. Like that was, that was the reason why I was not very into that. Um, Honda Classic coming up this week. Oh, here's a good little tweet. Jake Knapp ran out of money while trying to qualify for the PGA Tour, so he spent about nine months working as a bouncer as a nightclub to keep his uh, dreams alive. Um, million uh, winner's purse today. That's crazy that it's a winner's purse of $1.45 million in a bullshit PGA Tour event. 
I mean, there's probably a reason. I mean, the, we could get into this whole diatribe about why professional golf is unsustainable unless there's Saudi money involved in it. I mean, they're going to give out in, in two weeks, they're going to give out $20 million at the Arnold Palmer Invitational for a, a golf's a niche sport. Like that's, that's what it is. Um, but yeah, so we got the Honda classic next, which is not the Honda classic anymore. It's something else. Let me I send a text with it. Let me see if I can find it. The name of it. Like I didn't even recognize what it is. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Nope, 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 nope. Nah, I've lost it. I've lost it. Um, other golf news. Anthony Kim is reportedly uh, coming back to the Live Golf Tour next week. Uh, I think they're playing somewhere, obviously, if he's, he's playing next week. Live Golf, where is their schedule? Here we go. They are playing in Jeddah next week. So uh, tee off on March 1st will be 2.15 a.m. in the Central Time Zone. So I will not be getting up at 2.15 to watch... Um, to watch Anthony Kim, but I will check it out. I will check it out. Anthony Kim obviously has not uh, played golf anywhere professionally in a, a long, long time. Uh, it's been since I think 2012. Um, and I believe what I saw was that this was a deal that was more incentive based. There was always the thing that he had a, uh, a big insurance policy that if he didn't play golf, that he was able to keep cashing on. Um, he was he was a guy that came in hot. I mean, his last uh, year on tour was 2012. He played 10 events. He made two cuts. He had four missed cuts and three withdrawals. And somehow we're missing a an event there. He was DQ'd at the Northern Trust that year. Uh, his low round was a, a couple of 69s, one at the Waste Management one at the Arnold Palmer, but also throughout 2012 had rounds of 77, 76, and 83 at the final round of the Arnold Palmer. Uh, never never finished very high at all. I mean, his best finish that year was T42. I believe he was very injured. 2011, let's see how that looked. He played 26 events, um, made 14 cuts, missed 11, and withdrew uh, one time. So even then, not a great. He had a T5 at the uh, the British Open that year. Uh, he had a T12 at the Franklin Templeton shootout that was a December event. So, I mean, that you can barely count that. Uh, a T13 at the Shell Houston. Uh, missed the cut at the Masters. Missed the cut at the Players. T54 at the U.S. Open. So, nothing great in even 2011. 2010, I think, was his last good year on tour. Uh, pulling that up now. Oh, even in 2010, he only played 14 events. I think he got hurt in the – yeah, he, he didn't play from May until August that year. Uh, that, I believe, was the year – yes, that was the, the Masters year where he shot 65 on Sunday and made like 11 birdies. So I think I think really if you go back, like 2009 was his last like good year. He played 22 events that year, uh, three top tens, a runner-up. Did he win in 2010 or 2011? He did win in 2010 as well. Uh, he won the Shell Houston Open that year. Uh, so 2009, he did not win. 2008, I think he won once or twice. He won twice that year. 
and <clears throat> that was his Ryder Cup year. So uh, he was a he was kind of a flash in the pan. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he still got it all. I mean, he really didn't have when he left the PGA Tour. A lot of people, you know, would 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 guess that it, he's doing this because he's broke. So, uh, yeah. So so there's that. Um, let's go to some passing thoughts here. What do you say? Uh, roommate made some chili this past week. And uh, one of the days, I just had some buttered bread, some buttered white bread. I don't know if anybody else did this growing up, but like buttered white bread was a thing when you'd have spaghetti and meatballs. You just take a piece of white bread and spread some butter across it and like go with it. I know uh, some other people I've talked to um, in life have, have done, you know, poor man's garlic bread. You do buttered bread. You toast the bread, throw a little butter on it, throw a little uh, garlic powder. But yeah, buttered bread still hits, man. Still hits. Still hits. Uh, I talked a little bit about uh, my trip to Chicago. I'm just not a city guy, man. That, that is not for me. There, There's people who love it, and that's that's the kind of lifestyle they like. It, it's not mine. I like a small town. I like to get in my car and go wherever I want without having to worry about getting stuck in traffic. Uh, I did a, you know, a big city area for about a year in my life, lived outside Washington, D.C. And, you know, the, the breaking point for me was I was, I was trying to get somewhere that should have taken me, you know, 30, 45 minutes at the most. And it took me like two and a half hours. And that, that was, that was when I broke. I was like, I'm, I'm getting, I'm leaving. I'm going home. Like I'm going back to Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and then never really looked back. I, I don't mind living in like city adjacent. I lived kind of city adjacent outside Madison, Wisconsin for a while. And Madison's kind of a small city, but man, cities are not for me. Uh, I talked about the tiny hotel room. Uh, hotel was not the greatest experience. There was a dirty ass towel in our room. The room was tiny. They tried to charge me for, uh, taking shit out of the mini bar that didn't happen. So wasn't, wasn't my favorite experience. The hockey game was awesome. Had a good time. Uh, it was funny where we stayed walking around. Uh, went out to a bar to grab some food after the game and uh, have a drink. And, you know, they shot the dark night in Chicago. And, like, walking through, like, you could kind of look around and, like, you could see it. And, like, oh, man, I'm in the fucking dark night. Like, that was fun. I I, I don't mind an occasional trip to the city. Like, it, I didn't hate it. But when I, I look looking around, I was like, man, I, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do this long term. I know that's a personal preference. And some people are like, I couldn't live where you live. Like you live in this little town with nothing going on. And I love it. And other people are like that. That's just not for me, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That's just, that's not my style. Uh, that night I was just watching some TV before bed and four brothers was on that movie slaps. Four brothers is awesome. Uh, Mark Wahlberg kicks ass. The other brothers, Tyrese Gibson, uh, is it Tyrese Gibson? Is it Ty what's his name? What? It's not Tyrese Gibson. It is Tyrese Gibson. Tyrese Gibson, Andre three thousand. Um, Sophia Vergara was in it. Is she's the the um, she's Tyrese's girlfriend. Uh, Garrett Headland is in it. Uh, I the guy who plays Victor Sweet. You, you know him from things I can't pronounce. Chowetel Ejiofor. Ejiofor. He's in a lot of stuff. 12 Years a Slave. He's in 2012. He's in Doctor Strange. Uh, he's in a lot of things. He's a good actor. He plays the, the bad guy in that. Um, that's a fun movie, man. I really like that movie. I don't know if I should or if I shouldn't, but I like it. Uh, what else do I got here? I, there was a video of Cam Newton, like, getting jumped by, like, three dudes. And Cam was standing his ground. 
he was not bothered. He was not bothered at all by those dudes trying to jump him. He was having none of it. Like, he was fighting back. It was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, what else? Anything else here? That's about, oh, the NFL salary cap went up something like $30 million uh, for the coming year. Uh, helpful for the Packers. That's going to give them a little, they went from under the cap to above the cap because the cap went up by about $10 million more than expected. They were expecting about a $20 million bump, and it went up 30 So good news for the Packers. Um, I think that's about it. Let me just double check, see if I took pictures or anything. Yeah, cap up from 224 to 255 this year. Uh, just shy, $29.6 million increase. Uh, and uh, Joe Pampliano here, always always good information from Joe Pampliano. Uh, for context, next year, each team will, will probably receive over $400 million in national revenue from the league office, media rights, league sponsorships, et cetera meaning NFL teams are already up $150 million before any local revenue is calculated minus expenses. So good deal. Good deal there. Oh, also got a, got a picture uh, out in front of the Michael Jordan statue at, uh, at the United Center. That's, that's your boy there. Um, so that was cool, too, to, to get that. Uh, I, think, I think that's it. So um, why don't we go wrap this thing up? We've been, we've been going for a while here at this point. So. Uh, let's let's go close up the shop. Uh, closing time, everybody. Uh, thank you as always to everyone who watches, listening, uh, hangs out. Uh, thank you to our guests this week. Thank you to David Page for for coming on, talking to us. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, that's that's a new guest. That's not just a friend. That's someone you know we've we we re reached out to and had come on. So thank you, David. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you to Team Man and H Man coming on after a, a tough Flyers loss. Thank you to producer Kevy. Uh, as as he gets back to uh, after post writer strike and gets back to working on some TV shows here, uh, he's helping me transition into being able to to do some of the editing and uh, of the videos and and do it myself. So thank you to him. Uh, always producer Kevy, even if uh, even if I'm somehow trying to stumble through and take the reins here. So many many thanks. Um, and again, thank you to everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, have more to talk about, hoping to do some more fun stuff along the way. There's going to be golf. There's going to be hockey. There's going to be basketball. A lot of fun stuff coming. Uh, we're, we're not too far away from March Madness, and after that, the NFL Draft, and we're still got plenty, plenty of golf. So a lot of fun stuff coming up. So uh, until next time, peace. Uh...